Welcome to Fast Talk Labs, your home for all things psychology. <laughs> I love it. We'll be working on your spiritual development oh this morning. God. Okay, oh, I perfect. can start this. Yeah. Can okay, start this. let's go. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Fast Talk Labs, your home for the psychology of sport. This is Grant Holicky. I am here with Griffin and Dr. Scott Fry, my new old friend, because we're from the same part of the world. But today we're talking about the significance in the science of belief. What does that science have to show us about what we believe as athletes and how can we better understand what's going on in our minds and our bodies? Today's episode of Fast Talk is brought to you by Alter Exploration. Created by me, Fast Talk Labs co-founder Chris Case, Alter Exploration crafts challenging, transformative cycling journeys in some of the world's most stunning destinations. Alter Exploration. What we do is all in our name. First, our journeys are meant to be challenging. You'll alter your character, confidence, and resiliency in small but significant ways. Alter. Second, our trips are intended to be all-terrain tours on alternative routes. Pavement, gravel, dirt, grass, alter. Then there's exploration. Our journeys are an exploration of both the destination and yourself. Change your perception of what's possible while simultaneously experiencing a stunning landscape. Enter Alter's comfort zone by leaving your own and be altered. Learn more about my favorite adventure destinations and start dreaming at alterexploration.com. I want to introduce Scott. You've been on the show before. I have. Twice. Mm. We're talking about psychology. We're talking about people. Tell us a little bit about you as a person. We were talking off mic about our approach to the world I want to hear a little bit about your approach to the world, how it differs from our wives. Wow, <laughs> that's a lot. <laughs> My approach to the world is curious. I like to be curious and try to embrace the kind of vagaries and unpredictability with a curious and open attitude. How's that? I like it. I that was like beautiful. It. it was. It was very deep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we we're going to get into this <laughs> before everyone <laughs> before everyone turns off the podcast. I would say that uh, we'll do our best to treat this with the respect it deserves as as science. And I think that's a really important piece that that I want to start with is this idea that the things that we're talking about today are rooted in science. And I think when it comes to physiology. And that's why I jokingly opened this episode with that we get so much in sport about five watts and what we can do on those intervals, like you said today, you know, those two-minute intervals versus the four-minute intervals and all that stuff's super important. And, and we know that it's important. But how the mind and the body are tied together, and they're just inexorably tied together, you can't separate those two things, is something that's just missed in all coaching in my opinion, but specifically in endurance coaching. And so I want to throw this to you, Scott, and wanted you to start with this idea that you kind of presented to us. You gave us a little bit of a blurb and this little simple idea of something you've been working on. Yeah. So my world is in psychology and particularly in human neuroscience in a field that we now call cognitive neuroscience. So we're the people who use technologies like brain imaging to try and understand how the brain creates mental states. And from that perspective, all of our emotions, all of our perceptions, our beliefs, our thoughts, our memories, all of our plans and intentions and expectations arise because of physiology. They're not just coming out of thin air. And so when I think about the topic of beliefs and how those impact an athlete's performance, I'm really thinking about that as just as much a question of physiology as thinking about how you develop better mitochondria in your muscles. I think this is so important because when we talk about belief and we talk about science, and so many things that we talk about on this podcast, seeing is believing. There's a number for something. There's a symptom of something that's physical that we can, you know, see our body morph and change. Metrics move for so much of the science that we talk about this. And when we talk about the science of belief, I think it becomes invisible. Where does it come from? How is this 
passed down? How do we change this? And something I know you're going to talk about later on is imaging. Yeah, I think a real challenge with these kind of questions, any kind of mental states, memories, emotions, and so forth, are that we ultimately have to rely on people's subjective experience, right? We can't take a scan of your brain and say, ah, I see that you're believing this or believing that. (laughs) Right, right. But we can look at the relationship between your subjective reports of what you're experiencing and how the brain is creating those and the relationship between those two things. And that's really what I've spent the last 30 years of my life doing. So what I think is really important about this is the idea that, you know, we joke on this show or and we've talked about the idea of the soft science, right? That mental performance or psychology, those are soft sciences. And, and so much of it comes down to what you're saying. We can't come up with a brain scan and say, I know you're believing this. So even if I take an athlete and I say, what was your mental state and your best performance of all time? If I'm looking to try to, you know, get eyes off, I'm trying to understand individual zone of optimal functioning. I have to rely on that athlete's memory or that athlete's feelings of when they performed the best. But what you're saying a little bit is we can tie those two things together to some extent. If I take an athlete and they're struggling to perform, and this is a pet peeve of mine as a coach. I hear coaches say this all the time. This athlete's not performing. They're training at a higher level. They go to the performance and it's falling flat. And a coach will say it's all in their head. But one of the things that we know, and I'd like you to elaborate on this, is it's not all in their head. They're feeling something in their body. It's real. It's an absolute real feeling in their body. Now, where that comes from may be something different, but they're feeling that as something that's actual in themselves. Yeah, so what I'm about to say, Grant, is going to sound like a 3 a.m. dormitory conversation. <laughs> Let's go. From, Dude, from when you were a sophomore in college. Yeah, so, man. so brace yourselves. But it, this is how I think about this. You have a brain, and it's locked away in this completely silent, dark chamber. And the only way that brain can get any information about what's going on in the outside world or in the rest of your body is through your senses, touch, vision, hearing, smell, taste, and so forth. Those impulses come in through these specialized sensory organs that are populating our bodies, and the brain has to try and make sense out of that. And that's the key thing here. The brain has to make sense out of it. And it constructs out of those neural impulses coming in through those senses a reality. And that's what you and I are experiencing right now and in all of our waking hours, the construction of that brain based on those impulses that have been coming in. And the key thing I want people to know here is that that construction of reality is not objective. It's continually being shaped by our past experiences, our interpretation of the context that we find ourselves in at the moment, and our expectations and anticipation about the future. There's one thing I always loved about this, and it just kind of puts it into perspective. You're talking about the 3 a.m. dorm conversation. And for some people, this might be a little bit just kind of out there. But think about it this way. Your eye, we see by taking in light, and we have rods and cones in the back of our eye that interpret that light. But where the nerve, the optic nerve comes into that, There's no rods and cones. We can't bring in anything from the outside. We have a blind spot in both of our eyes all the time, no matter what. There's no physiological way around it. But yet when you look out in the world, there's no blind spot. Your brain is filling in that hole constantly all the time, no matter what. So everything that you look at all the time, there's two fake spots fake, I put in quotes, that your brain has filled in for you. So when when you're looking at this concept that you're talking about, that's just a really bring it home place that this happens all the time. It's going on constantly. Our brain is filling in the gaps for us. And that gap fill in, as you're saying, is a product of everything else that's going on in our lives and in our worlds. So the brain's the boss, right? I mean, that black box... Like you say, I love that analogy. It becomes the guide to all of this. And one of the things that I want to touch base on, because you've you've talked about this idea a little bit, is the placebo effect. Because this is going to be a really nice way to elaborate on what we're talking about. And 
how that works in medicine, but also how that works in sport. Yeah. So I think this is where we can start to ground some of the 3 a.m. dormitory conversation in things that our scientifically oriented audience can really sink their teeth into. So I want to begin with a little history here, because I think it's really important to understand. So we can look back through the history of medicine, all the way back to the ancient Greeks, and like the arguably the first physician, Galen, and we can look through his papers, and he was already aware of the fact that how people responded to the treatments that he could offer or his fellow physicians really depended not just on the treatment itself, but on the patient's expectations. So the delivery of that treatment in the context in which it was presented in, he saw and appreciated that it was making a big difference. Now, we can flash forward all the way to the early part, middle part of the 20th century, not that long ago, especially for those of us like myself who are <laughs> pushing 60. I guess that's the only person in this room who can say that. But when we started to develop a more modern medical science where we wanted to really investigate the effectiveness of things like drugs and surgeries, there was an appreciation of what Galen had pointed out, that the mind and the mind's interpretation and expectations of the treatment and what could be expected from that was also influencing how people would be responding to the drugs or the surgery or whatever other medical intervention might be provided. And so as we developed a modern medical science, not all that long ago, savvy people thought to themselves, it's really important that we try to control for those effects. If we want to know if that drug is really going to lower your blood pressure, then we need to sort that pharmacological effect out from the belief effects, the expectancy effects. And the way they did that was to create these kind of clinical trials, which became the gold standard in medicine. And the critical thing for our conversation is that they created a system for double blinding them. And what I mean by that is that the patients in the study weren't aware of whether they were getting the actual drug or some kind of inert substance that looked like the drug, but could induce these kind of expectancies. And the second part of that, the double blinding part, is that the people who were handing out the drugs and coding the data weren't aware of it either. And that double blinding was really important because that was the way of trying to control for the contaminating effects of beliefs on how people responded to these treatments. An unintentional byproduct of this was the realization that often those people who were getting the inert substances, the placebo, if you will, in these blinded trials, actually showed enormous responses that frequently dwarf the size of the response to the actual treatment. And medicine kind of rolled forward, right? And right. so we, we now will approve a drug, the FDA will approve a drug if the response is bigger than the placebo effect in a statistically meaningful way. But you can turn that around and say, well, how big is that placebo effect? And a lot of times the placebo effect alone is actually larger than the bump that the actual pharmacology gives you. And we can look across a lot of traditional medicines that docs pull off the shelf all the time. And that's more often than not the case. Now, to think about that in the context of sport and sport science, we can get into a discussion about the role the beliefs might be playing in, in some of those worlds. Yeah, and I do want to take a quick step back, though. It's just this idea of they're pulling Sudafed off the shelf right now, right? And I was talking to my mom the other day, and she's like, well, I'm still going to get it. It still works for me. And that like is that they're pulling it off the shelf because the FDA says, well, Sudafed doesn't work as a decongestant anymore. But- you know, if the patient believes that it's working, then maybe it's working. This is the idea behind that. But the big thing that I want to stop and kind of ask you about here is, but that response isn't just belief, right? It's not just that the patient believes. There's a physiological reaction in the body. Like if we're doing a double blind study, it's not just that the, the patient's coming to the doctor at the end and goes, oh no, doc, I feel better. We're looking at the results and going, oh, no, 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 they got better. Right. 
but just by how much and, and whatever goal posts that they had set. Right. And so, I mean, that's to me what's so interesting about that and what I think is missed so often in the idea of placebo. Those people are getting well. They're getting better. And if we alter that to sport, then we can start to say, well, that athlete's getting fitter. That athlete's getting faster because of that. Yeah. And so I think this is where we can go back to that 3 a.m. dorm conversation, <laughs> right? Just keep going back I, to I it. I like yeah. going back to it. As a scientist, it's not enough for me to know that something happened. I want to know why. What are the mechanisms, right? And we do actually know a lot about the mechanisms of belief and expectations in terms of neurophysiology, in terms of how the brain is responding. And we've gathered that kind of data in labs like my own over the last several decades as new technologies have become available to actually peer into the brain and look at that. And what we know now is that a lot of these effects that can be attributed to belief, expectations, broadly labeled as placebo effects, or its dark cousin, which I hope we'll talk about, which are the nocebo effects, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Are coming about because of changes in multiple brain neurotransmitter systems, and also in hormone systems and in the immune system. It's remarkable. It's like the brain is really set up in a way that helps to augment whatever other kind of intervention or treatment. We're talking about it in terms of medicine for the moment, but think about training interventions, nutritional interventions, recovery interventions. They're all the same, right? They're manipulations. They're affecting... Transmitter systems like our endogenous pain-killing analgesic system, endogenous opioids, serotonin, dopamine networks. You, know, you talked about how clinical trials evolved and the different measures that were taken and how double-blind came to be. To me, I wish I could go back in history and go, wait, 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 time, time, time <laughs> out. Do you not realize what you're doing and that you might actually be trying to mask or almost, I don't want to say study the opposite, but flip the script. Turn the perspective. If this is such an impactful component of an experiment that you are trying to strip it away, then what if we pause, like I said, flip the script and say, let's actually examine that and can we harness that? Obviously, in the research that you'll be talking about and today, that has begun, that has been happening, but I don't think it's really made its way into the, the general public to understand. Instead, it just gets shamed as something that can be manipulated. Or it gets described as a miracle, right? Or mm -hmm. it gets described as anomalous. That's maybe <laughs> the main thing. Like there's somebody who has cancer and they, you know, just did everything right and believed and all that stuff and it was stage four cancer and everybody gave them two weeks to live and they lived for another 20 years. Yeah. We talk about that as the miracle or the anomalous event. But when you talk to those people, very rarely do you get one of those patients that turns around and says, oh, now I, I was ready to die. You know, I yeah. believed it. In a lot of cases, they're going out finding a naturopath or some of these things that they believe in and then getting well on the backside of that. I've got to say, I'm what you call a naturopath. We are naturopathic physicians or naturopathic doctors who have gone to a medical school, but... No, no, no. I didn't mean to yeah, say that yeah, as... Yeah, no, yeah. I wasn't saying that. I was, I was saying that as going and finding that thing that's not conventional medicine that they believe in, right? Uh, or what we see as conventional medicine mm -hmm, in the Western mm -hmm. world, which is kind of not that inclusive, honestly, <laughs> of a lot of history around the world with medicine. But my point to that is if I feel like I'm going to go do this, it's going to work. And I really believe that. That means something physiologically to the body and how the immune system, say, interacts with that. Yeah. And as you said, Scott, that idea that the body is almost set up to augment something, right? We know this in the scientific world that a virus can change genetics, and turn mm -hmm. things on in terms of epigenetics and turn on a certain reaction or a certain emotional reaction of the person who's ill with that virus. Yeah. And we're almost seeing it the other way around, perhaps. Speaking of these 3 a.m. conversations, we'll probably have to talk about this after we're done recording. But as far as the power of belief goes, this is where people like we kind of jokingly talked about Oprah before the podcast. <laughs> right. But there are people like Joe Dispenza who are doing meditations and having people believe things. And then, you know, he's measuring all sorts of stuff in his research. I don't know extensively, but I've listened to it. And mm -hmm. man, you feel really good after half an hour. Right. So, I mean, beyond this 
power of belief and the significance and where this has come from. How would you kind of wrap up this fundamental understanding of the science of belief? Yeah, I think it's pretty simple in a way. And that is that anytime we experience any kind of treatment intervention, and certainly I'm putting training, nutrition, recovery in that in that bin, there's whatever those things are doing to our physiology, the kind of things people are normally talking about here, the sport right. scientists you bring in who can really nail those things down. And we can separate that from the effects of belief and expectations if we do these double-blinded studies. But in the real world, the way a patient responds, the way an athlete responds is a mix of the direct effects of that intervention plus these beliefs. They're separable in the research world in the kind of artificial environment of a lab study or a clinical trial. But in reality, how we respond to anything is both. Placebos are a great demonstration because there is no actual pharmacological treatment that's happening. But for every treatment, no matter how effective it is, there's this additional layer when we bring it to the real world that has to do with expectations and beliefs. And that can go in either direction, facilitating it or diminishing it. Right. So if we look at training, this is something that I used to say a lot. You know, any training protocol will work if the athlete believes in that training protocol. But one of the points that's really important and when we make in this is to tie it back to what you're saying is I can do polarized training. I can do all base training. I could do all tempo training. Let's say there's four different, five different ways to train the body. All those training methodologies are going to get a response. When we talk in here about the nitty gritty sports science, in a lot of ways, we're talking about that last 5%, that last 10%, right? If I take an untrained individual, I can do just about anything with them and they're going to get a huge response. So that last 5 to 10%, let's remember that we're getting almost all the way there with any of these interventions. So what the athlete believes in, what the athlete is comfortable with, what the athlete wants to do. And this is why as a coach, I'm going to turn to that athlete if I have a new athlete and say, what are your favorite workouts? What do you love to do? Now, everybody in here listening knows I love intensity. But if I have an athlete come to me and say, I, I love 3 by 20 I feel so strong after I do 3 by 20 minute LTs. Then I'm going to make sure that I'm writing in 3 by 20 minute LTs into their training plan because they're going to get something out of that not just physiologically, even if I don't think that's the right intervention, because of their belief and because of the combination of that power of that belief in that workout and the physiology gains of that workout, now we've superpowered that workout. Yeah, and I think this is one of the best arguments for what is the value that's added by having a coach who knows the athlete, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's probably more challenging when we think about like, pre-written training plans that you can buy, not to criticize those, but this is an additional layer that comes from that human interaction that is very hard to replace. Fast Talk Laboratories offers deep dives into your favorite training topics like intervals, polarized training, data analysis, and sports nutrition. Take a look now at our cycling-based training pathway. Now is the perfect time to see how to lay the perfect foundation for an awesome season. In our new guide to cycling-based training, experts Joe Friel, Dr. Steven Seiler, Brian Kohler, Dr. Annie Pruitt, and I show why good base training isn't just about riding endless miles. We share how to plan and structure your base season, how to monitor your efforts, and how to track your fitness gains so you start your next training phase with a strong aerobic engine. See more at fasttalklabs.com pathways. So this is a perfect moment to pivot and talk about context because I think this is where coaches, I'll say this is my background as a, a medical provider, where they are able to make sense of the context. They're able to get a lay of the land. They're able to, in some cases, diagnose what's going on, bring all the variables into picture, make sense of it for the athlete and, and to move forward. So can we talk about context and belief? I think it goes back again to our 3 a.m. dorm conversation. <laughs> <That's good. laughs> 
Remember that we were talking about the fact that your brain is, is interpreting all of this incoming sensory information from your body, from the outside world, people around you, everything. And it is creating your experience that you're having, what we call reality, based on the context. And that context consists of three things, your past experiences, which are unique to all of us, your interpretation of the present situation that you're having the experience in and your expectations and anticipation of the future. That's the context. And that is where a coach can intervene. And I think, well, many coaches have a very practical understanding of that. In a sense, it's like the double blind thing, right? We want those coaches to also understand that what they're doing actually is just as real, is just as based in physiology as those VO2 max workouts are. Right. So that idea, Dr. Zolliger, who I worked with at Adam State when I went to my master's, he talks about always wanting to deliver the mental strength through the coach, mm. right? And that idea that that coach's interaction and how that coach interacts, what they're saying, what their response is to what the athlete is giving them can guide and move the athlete in the moment. You know, we talk a lot in mental strength about brief interventions. That You can always sit down with somebody and do a traditional psychology appointment kind of thing where, you know, we're going to talk, we're face to face, but so much of what we do as a mental strength provider or mental performance coach is going to be in the moment. If I have an athlete coming to me five minutes before their race, oh, I feel like this. And whenever I feel like this, I tend to perform poorly, right? And this comes back to context, right? They're taking their past experiences, they're taking their expectations, and they're combining all of those things together in one piece. And now they've created a reality. They've created their context. So when their legs start to burn, that's not seen as the normal progression of a hard workout. That's seen within the context of, oh, no, I always feel like this when I'm having a bad day, and this is why I'm having a bad day. So that coach in the place that can say, hey, remember, your legs are always going to burn. You know, get that one half step ahead. That's where we can really have an influence on that athlete's performance in the moment with all this that's going on. And you're specifically, in that example, talking about changing the meaning behind all or nothing thinking as well, right? Oh, I always feel this right. way. And this is always what happens. And I believe that da, 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 da. And then a coach turning around going, yeah, actually, this always will be a reality. And yeah. it just immediately has a different connotation. Right. Think about it this way. If you had a walk to work and you walked under a bridge on your way to work, uh, you walk under that bridge 200 times a year on your way to work and a pigeon poops on you one time when you're walking under that, that's going to stick out, right? That memory sticks out because it's really unusual. It doesn't take much before, let's say a hundred days later, a pigeon poops on you again. Now it's happened twice. And your brain turns that event into every time I walk under this bridge, that pigeon poops on me. And so that's the kind of power that the context can have. And like we're saying, you can go, you have to come back and take reality and take logic to that athlete or to that person and go, how many times did we walk under that bridge? So you're telling me it's a one in 100 shot. Like that's not every time. That's very unusual. And our brains don't tend to work like that. We like the exceptional event. We remember the exceptional event. And so negatively, that happens a lot in the brain. That's confirmation bias, right? So the next time I want to describe confirmation bias, I'm going to talk about a pigeon taking a poop on my shoulder. <laughs> I like how everybody's trying to avoid the real word we use. It. <laughs> it's a family show. It's a <laughs> yeah, and I just want you to remember when you do recall that, that that was Grant's <laughs> gift to the conversation yeah. here. Yeah, so coaches have the opportunity to intervene in the context, right? And that's what all the research is trying to strip out, mm -hmm. which I get why we're doing that. I get why my fellow scientists want to separate those things, but you have to understand that that can limit their generalization of the results from the artificial lab to the real world. Mm -hmm. And when you hear scientists saying, yes, but that's just placebo, or science doesn't care what you believe, well, it should. Yeah, we're missing something if we say that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and again, 
I see it from the angle of physiology because I'm a brain scientist. That's mm -hmm. what I study. To your point, Griffin, confirmation bias is the thing that keeps our beliefs static and protects them, right? And the way that works for all of us is that we have a bias to see the things that fit with whatever it is we believe and not see the things that don't. And it's true, you can look at zillions of studies in psychology about this, and it doesn't matter how educated a person is, how uneducated they are, whether they're a scientist, a lawyer, a non-scientist, we all fall victim to this little glitch in our software, which is confirmation bias. We look for stuff that fits with our beliefs. And that's why beliefs can be hard to change, but they can be changed. And they have to be challenged in order to be changed. And that's another role for a coach to start finding out which of those beliefs are limiting to athletes. It's one of the things I do in my work with people. What are those friction points? Where are those beliefs holding you back? And how can I interject and intervene to try to lubricate those friction points so you can move forward? I am feeling like I'm having a 3 a.m. conversation over here because my eyes are welling up. I'm It's like David after dentist. I'm just like coming <laughs> alive right now. I have never, I mean, and it seems so obvious, but I've never heard anyone talk about how confirmation bias is essentially static. That represents static mental growth. How is that not the best way to talk about that with an athlete who's always wanting to PR, always wanting to push themselves and saying, hey, calling it out, naming it. That's confirmation bias that shows that your mental perspective, your beliefs have plateaued. And if I, as an, I'm not even a professional athlete, <laughs> but I am obsessed with self-growth and, you know, mm -hmm. continuing to evolve. If someone were to say that to me, like you're plateauing, first off, that would be such a slap in the face. Yeah. That would be a wake-up call. Yeah. And I would say, whoa, it's my beliefs that now need to PR. Like that, you know, I need to move forward and I need to advance. So I was having this discussion with an athlete yesterday and they were talking about, well, I haven't gotten much faster this year. You know, my results are this or that. And and what I drew back is a triathlete. And I said, okay, are you a better swimmer than you were a year ago? Oh yeah. Are you a better cyclist than you were a year ago? Oh yeah, well, I can see that number right there. Are you a better runner than you were a year ago? Uh, I don't know. Okay, well, if you're a better cyclist than a swimmer, are you probably more efficient? Oh, yeah, I am going more efficient in the run. All right, how do we implement that then? And that's the confirmation bias of this expectation of where this athlete thought they were going to finish and what they thought they can do. They've been doing this for two or three years. And so this is where I swim. This is where I bike. This is where I run. And what that athlete was missing is that as you're kind of noting, Griffin, that expectation, that feedback loop of, well, I feel this way, which means I'm going to go this fast, which means this and that, limited them from being able to take the bike out like a bat out of hell. Like, I need you. You're not a great swimmer. I need you to take the bike out like a bat out of hell, and I need you to go catch this pack. That means 10, 15 minutes for this athlete at 350, 360. They don't want to do that because it's going to feel awful down the road. And how do they interpret that feeling of awful? There's two ways, right? There's, oh God, look at this. I'm going to die. And man, I did it. Good for me. Now let's go. And so it's how do we take that as a coach or as a mental strength provider, mental performance provider, and educate the athlete of, yes, break down your confirmation bias pieces. Now look at this. And there's the growth path forward. There's the way to turn this into something special. Yeah, the solution for that athlete was not you need to bump up your volume on the run or you need to get on the track more. I think that the potential for the kind of things we're talking about here are far more than marginal gains for most athletes. Yeah, I think this falls quickly into maximal gains. It really does. It falls into that bucket of go out and get on the bike today. It really, to me, is pretty basic, fundamental stuff as a coach and an athlete. I know before the show, you talked about being the author of our own lives, or our own beliefs. And in that way, I wonder not only the people around us, but especially a coach then becomes a co-author, right? So you really want to be mindful of who you're picking and, and what you're creating together. But if let's say someone has recognized, okay, wow, confirmation bias is just such a large presence in my training or just in my mentality overall. 
and I believe you call it belief revision. So how do we go from confirmation bias to belief revision? Well, the answer... (laughs) (laughs) And this is where it gets hard. Yeah. Yeah. No. Let's get into it. Yeah, no, I think it's a great point. And the answer is very much like how do we get better at doing those really hard efforts? We get out of our comfort zone and we spend time in a state of discomfort. And we know when we do that, we get boost to our physiology. Well, this is a way of boosting your neurophysiology. And the way to combat confirmation bias is to challenge those beliefs by seeking out information that conflicts with them and deliberately exposing yourself to the anxiety and the stress of questioning those beliefs. And that's true in the world at large, and it's true in the context of the world we're talking about, which is how to improve your performance. And I think that's where a good mental performance coach comes in, being able to hold up that mirror, challenge, as Grant was saying, the individual with uncomfortable truths. One of the most powerful things in belief revision that psychologists have have talked about that combats confirmation bias is the discomfort, the anxiety, the cognitive dissonance, right? The jargon term that comes about by realizing that, wow, that belief is not really representing facts very well and not serving me. Yeah, I think that's a great point. You know, we talk a lot in mental strength about, okay, what's going on? Well, I'm anxious, I'm, I'm worried, I'm all of these things. Okay, what have you been doing in training? We combat that anxiety and those emotions that are apart and driven so much by our context with logic, with facts, with that take the breath, take the moment, take that time. And it's so hard. I mean, Griffin, you challenged us or challenge, you, you asked yeah, us. Yeah, I do. For, <laughs> <laughs> All right. But in, in in preparation for this episode, you asked Scott and myself for two examples mm-hmm. of power of belief, anecdotes on power of belief and what we believed. And one of the things that I wrote down is that <laughs> <laughs> I have an anger problem. I get very emotional. And I know that about myself as an athlete. I know that about myself as a person. I'm a very emotional person. So I can get angry very quickly. The same way I can get sad very, very quickly. For better or for worse, I'm in tune with those things. But the anger part was so difficult for me because I would get hijacked by this emotion and it would just go. And, you know, there's that degree of kind of confirmation by I'm right. I'm allowed to be angry. This is, you know, legitimate, all of those things. But what I'm not doing in any of that situation is slowing down and looking at the other person that I'm getting angry at. Mm -hmm. What is their context? What is going on with them? Why are they acting the way they're acting? You know, they're probably not trying to piss me off. They're probably having their own moment. And so the way I had to deal with my anger problem is to slow down, take a moment, take logic, look at the world around me and understand what was going on. Otherwise, I just went the same path I'd always gone, right? And we talk about the habit of it. This is where confirmation bias kind of rolls into our habit, right? And we can make good habits or we can make bad habits, but- you know, <laughs> confirmation bias for an athlete can even be a little bit tied to superstition. Every time this happens, I race poorly. Therefore, I'm going to race poorly. Stop, slow down. Let's take a look at what's going on and go forward from there. I'm going to pose this question to you, Scott, because what you're talking about is essentially going on autopilot, right? And when you have a belief or vision or you're changing habits, you have to create new pathways, right? Of behavior from belief to action, which requires that keyword action. So first off, thanks for your vulnerability and talking to us about your feelings and your anger. Oh, shut up, I resonate. (laughs) Um, I I really appreciate that. But before we hear, you know, yours and, and, and my examples as well, I would love to pause on that because you're talking about autopilot and these mm-hmm. pathways and kind of what that, to steer that ship on a new, new path. Can you speak to that? What's happening in the brain between autopilot to belief revision? Absolutely. So one of the things that's really become apparent in my time as a brain scientist, which has been very exciting, is the fact that 
the brain is not hardwired, it's softwired. And that just as the brain is creating our perceptions, emotions, beliefs, and all the jazz I was talking about, and our behaviors, our actions in the world, it's being shaped by the repetition of those thoughts, perceptions, actions, emotions, beliefs, right? So if you make a little change to a belief, you confront it with some information and you're like, well, you know, I actually am running a little bit better. Look at those numbers. And you do that incrementally. What's going to happen is that the neural circuitry that is responsible for producing that mental state, that belief, is going to start to change. I know that sounds really far out, but, you know, I've spent a lot of my career studying how changing behavior changes the brain. And I could go into a diatribe about that. But the (laughs) point is, it starts for us with the behavior gets back to what you were saying, Griffin. We are the authors, in a, in a sense, of our own reality, but we're the authors of our own neurophysiology. We can change our brain by incrementally changing our behavior, and a pattern of belief, a pattern of thought, is a mental behavior. Right. So think about it this way. If we're doing something physically, the more we use that neural pathway, the more myelin we lay around those nerves and the better and better when we get at that mental pathway, there's more insulation, it fires. It just wants to go. It just wants to go. It just wants to go. Free throw shooter. They get up there and they can turn the brain off. They'll just shoot the free throw. The neural pathway is charged to change that habit. And I don't know if this is actually true (laughs) physiologically, (laughs) but what I will say a lot to athletes, if you want to change that physical habit, you need to use that new pathway so often that that old pathway is seen as less efficient. And that's hard. You really have to spend the time to do that. I tend to try to describe the mental pathways the same way. We can do those mental pathways. But for me, with my anger, if I don't choose the different way to do it, if I am not forcing myself down that pathway over and over and over again, I'm just going to default. And I'm just going to default to being angry. I'm just going to default to being reactionary. I'm just going to default to assuming that person's trying to get me. And I think that's a really important piece with what you're saying, this plasticity of the brain, this soft wiring of the brain. We can change it, but we have to just be committed to that process. We need those people around us that are reminding us, hey, we can do this. We can do this. We can do this. Yeah, these are skills just like any other skill. We tend to get locked in this mindset of thinking that, you know, we can think about a free throw as a skill. We could think about swim stroke as a skill, and we could think about all the work and incremental progress it takes to get better at those things. Thought patterns, mental acuity, all of these things, reshaping of these beliefs, these are skills. They're mental skills that can be trained and developed. They're not something different. And just like changing your swim stroke, is changing physiology from the brain to the muscles. What we're talking about here is changing your neurophysiology. It's all physiology. There's a book called Unfuck Yourself by Gary John Bishop. And I'm, I would say most of the way through it right now. And not only do I love it because it's a very realistic, harsh Scotsman narrating the entire (laughs) thing who's just making inappropriate comments the whole time. Love it. But he talks about the power of assertive self-talk. So he doesn't believe in affirmations. He like kind of looks at all this going, I'm not your guy. If you want to look in yourself in the mirror every day, but he goes through a list of them. And one of the ones that we're talking about right now is the assertive self-talk of I am wired to win always. And then he goes into talking about, it's just, what are you winning at? Because right now you are winning at whatever the resultant behavior is. You are doing it so well. (laughs) And maybe it's like, you are doing it so well by missing that morning workout. You are winning. (laughs) But what you're winning at is not getting up off the couch. And so being able to say, I am wired to win, but what I'm saying I want to win at versus what's actually happening, that discrepancy is where these skill sets come in. And so using assertive self-talk almost as the catalyst for calling out that discrepancy and then deciding all these skill sets that, that we're talking about now and we'll get into to actually bridge that gap and to steer that ship. It's a great book. I do recommend. There's a lot of cursing, you know. But a typical episode with Rob and Trevor, though, you know. So. Yeah, the, way, the way they've been going lately, yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> so let's expand on this. 
Scott. Let's look at this idea of encouraging and empowering these, I hesitate to call them positive beliefs, beliefs that can make us successful because they're not always positive, right? I mean, I think we find this in mental strength with, I mentioned it earlier, the individual zone of optimal functioning. Some people's individual's eyes off is being really angry at themselves. Maybe not a lot of longevity in that, but that works for some people. So we don't want to talk about positive beliefs, but what can athletes do to continue to make these empowering beliefs, these beliefs that are going to drive them forward? How do we make them stick? I think it's the same way we make that swim stroke stick, rehearsal, practice. And I think that sometimes what a coach might need to do is create some evidence when there isn't great evidence that things are improving. Mm -hmm. They need to find a way to show that to the athlete. Maybe that's finding a situation where they can have a win, whatever a win might be, that can help to begin that belief or vision process. I want to go back to this story that you kind of talked about in the blurb and the story of incredibly high-level cyclists believing they were performing for one reason, but they were performing completely on their own skill set and, and cognizance and, and ability. When you sent this to us, you called out a couple specifically. Yeah, so Richard Veronk, I don't remember the year, 97 comes to mind, could be wrong, but he became aware that there was a new substance, a stimulant that was being used around, shared around the Peloton, and he sent his soigneur to go find the substance and get now, it for Now, him. let's take a step back and understand that Richard Veronk was willing to try just about anything at that time that was the prohibited <laughs> right. substance. Oh, yeah, and ended up serving a, a, Minor a, details. a band Minor details. as a result yeah. of that. Yeah. But the upshot is that the, the swanee went out to procure the amphetamine and ended up not getting it, coming back and injecting some saline into Veronk's backside unbeknownst to him. And he went out and rode the best time trial of his life. I think he ended up second in the tour. He's a climber, not right. a time trialist. So it was super impressive. And raving after the stage about <laughs> how much that substance had helped him. And it was just sailing. But what the Swanee had done was appreciate the things we've been talking about. You know, if we could have stuck Farang's head in a brain scanner, we probably would have seen the physiological roots of, of how that was being manifest. But the more important thing for all of us here is the performance. And it was extraordinary. All right, Scott. So you talked about with Veronk saying that if you took a brain image and, and you looked at what was going on in his brain, you could see something specifically fire up. So what do we mean by that? Yeah. So I'm going to preface this by saying these are early days. And I wish I could sit here and say, yes, we've got this study of world tour cyclists and we've looked at before and after shots of their brain uh, in my functional MRI scanner and so forth. I can't do that for you, but I can give you some of the neurophysiological background of what we do know about the kind of things we've been discussing. And I'm going to use two examples. I'm going to use the first one from the world of pain and the second one from the world of dopamine and Parkinson's disease because those we really have good, solid biological data on. So a lot of the work that's been done on placebo effects, beliefs, ex expectancies, and how they change our neurophysiology comes from the world of pain. And very briefly, you can look at our other episode on pain, but there are two brain systems involved in the experience of pain that we have. The first is our nociceptive system, which takes input from specialized receptors throughout our body. Those impulses come up to the brain and they stimulate particular areas of the brain. And those are giving us the sensory experience of pain. Is it throbbing? Is it sharp? Is it nagging? And so forth. There's a second system. It's relatively independent of that first system, and it's more cognitive and emotional in its nature. And it involves areas involved in thought and emotion, areas of the insula, areas of the anterior cingulate gyrus, other corda ridiculously uh, <laughs> difficult to pronounce <laughs> brain areas. But there are these two networks, right? And together they create this experience of pain that we have, the sensory experience, but then the interpretation 
of what that pain is coming from. Think about it. If you were doing Trevor's favorite five by five intervals, VO2 max intervals, in the context of, of a workout, the pain would be tremendous, but you'd feel like, oh, I know this pain, I'm safe and so forth, and you get through them. But if you were sitting here in this room right now and suddenly your legs started feeling like that, <laughs> you would hit the floor yeah. and beg for me to call you an ambulance, mm -hmm. right? Context is everything. And that context and perception stuff we were talking about earlier is involved in that insular system, in the cingulate cortex. Those are the areas that the beliefs are really manifesting physiologically. And in a way, they're acting as kind of filters on those incoming pain signals in that nociceptive system. And together, that's creating that experience that we have of pain. So if we give people a drug that is analgesic, that can lower pain, and uh, we give other people in this study an inert substance that looks just like that drug, and they know, the people in the study know they have less a 50-50% chance of getting either, we can actually look at how the actual drug and how the placebo are affecting these brain systems in response to a painful stimulus. And when we do that, we see they're affecting them in very similar ways. And that the people are likewise reporting diminishments in the intensity of the pain they're experiencing in both of those conditions in relation to how the placebo or the pharmacological substance are modulating those brain networks. Primarily, they're modulating this system that we talk about as the cognitive emotional system of pain, insula, cingulate, and so forth. So that's a wonderful example, I think, where we can start to tie this to the physiology. The second is in Parkinson's disease. When you have Parkinson's disease, you have a very selective loss of neurons in the substantia nigris that produce uh, dopamine. They're very specifically affected in Parkinson's disease. And as you lose those neurons over time, you produce less dopamine and you start to develop the symptoms we think about. The tremor, there's cognitive sy symptoms that can manifest, the freezing of gait and so forth. And we can do something about that medically. We can give you levodopa, which is a precursor for your brain to make more dopamine. There have been some terrific studies looking at people when you give them levodopa or a placebo. And what you can see in those studies, we can put a, not an, a functional MRI, but we can do a PET scan where we can actually label, radioactively label systems that allow us to see how much dopamine is being produced in the brain. And what we see is depending on the people in the study who get the levodopa, we see a modulation of the dopamine as you would expect. But what's really interesting is the people who are just getting an inert substance that they think has a probability of being the dopamine also show a response there, but it's tied to what they believe the likelihood that that's a real drug is. So if you're 75% likelihood that the thing you just took is a dopamine, you believe, you expect that it's dopamine, even if it's not, you're gonna show an increase in the production of dopamine in the brain, even though you haven't gotten a drug to give that boost. Your brain is gonna figure out a way to squeeze a little more juice from those oranges. So this is a great way to tie it all together. What you're just talking about, that is the best example I think we can find of that idea that the placebo is actually making your body do something that your body wouldn't normally do. It's producing more dopamine than it would normally do, not from a drug, just from this idea of belief. So I think maybe one of the big things we want to kind of finish this or tie a bow on this with is what can we do as athletes to increase that belief that increases our ability to go now and improve the performance, right? And we can get into a million different things, but as you noted with that Parkinson's patient, if they're in that range of 70% chance that they're getting this, or they have this 70% chance of believing that they're going to get this, that's when we're watching the dopamine levels go up. If we're talking to a patient that has, no, nah, I'm probably not going to get that. The dopamine levels don't go up. So there's a precursor here with what the athlete believes if we're talking about sport, right? So we have to prep that athlete as coaches or we have to prep ourselves as athletes to be ready for the power of belief. Yeah, I think coaches and athletes need to stop thinking of things like belief 
as tricks or nonsense and start realizing is they're just as physiologically grounded as anything else they're doing with their nutrition, with their training, recovery, and, and so forth. And that that alone is potentially a very important belief for them to have. Right. And if we tie that into mental strength coaching, we have, when I talk about mental strength, there's seven skill sets that we can, and, and we could get into the things like self-talk, things of that nature. But it's also really important that that athlete finds those mental skills that work for them, that are very individualized, that, that they believe can help them. If I take an athlete and I go, we're going to do self-talk, and they're like, self-talk doesn't work. It's not going to work. So how do we find that individualized program, both physiologically and mentally, for those athletes to set them up to prime them, so to speak, to be into this place? Yeah, that's where the art of coaching, as you guys often talk about, it comes in. The coach is the creator of the context. Yeah, and they can become that guide for the athlete to help understand that context and move forward. And it can go both ways, right? right? You can right. create the wrong context. You can make athletes feel uncomfortable, unsafe. This is the that, nocebo you the mentioned. The nocebo effect, right? At the opposite of the placebo, boost is the detrimental effect of this kind of negative expectation or negative belief. I think that, you know, in my background with mind-body medicine, when you hold certain beliefs or when you have certain types of self-talk to, your body does tend to produce some type of physiological feedback or a mm -hmm. symptom, but so many people are oblivious to it. And then again, you might feel something, but you need to know context. Like, oh, I may feel really uncomfortable right now. Yeah, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing, right? So being able to understand if you're holding certain beliefs or your coach is promoting certain beliefs and in your training environment, your racing environment that make you feel a certain way, you can recognize, oh, I'm carrying so much tension in my jaw right now, or I am yep. actually really scared. And then being able to work through it with a soundboard, like a therapist or a coach or, or whoever it is to understand, is that a reliable foundation for where that belief comes from or, or, or what meaning you're making of it? Yeah, I think, I mean, that's a really good point. And I think we talk to athletes a lot about how they're feeling or, or you know, what they're going through. And a great example of this is I listen to coaches say this all the time to their athletes, just calm down, just Ugh. calm down. And But it's right before an event, right? We're about to go to the start of a 200 meter freestyle. We're about to go to the start of a cyclocross race. We don't want to calm down. All those nerves, all that anxiety, all those things they're feeling, they're a product of adrenaline. We want that adrenaline. We have to find a way to be comfortable with letting that adrenaline come in. We have to then use the mental skills. We have to use the experience. We have to use all of those things. We don't want to calm down because if you calm that athlete down, the start comes and they're calm. All that adrenaline's gone. All those pieces are gone. So yeah, it's really important to have this understanding of what is needed right now and what you are feeling and how those two things tie together. And it is really helpful to have a guide in that. You can do it by yourself. You just have to be very open-minded. And it takes a lot of journaling. It takes a lot of this stuff because we're going to remember things incorrectly. So, yeah, I think that's a really interesting way to tie this all together. The power of belief and the power of coaching and the power of what the athlete does all together as one. Burr. Winter, the air is cold, but you're getting back to conditioning and looking to rev up your training. If you haven't already, now is a great time of year to reflect on the past season. Specifically, when it comes to data and recovery, two very important metrics in endurance sports. Visit Fast Talk Labs and take a look at our pathways on recovery and data analysis. These two in-depth guides can help you get the most from your off-season. See more at fasttalklabs.com pathways. I thought maybe an interesting way to wrap up could be for you to tell us one of your personal or professional anecdotes on the power of belief. I'll share one of mine, but let's not leave Grant out there on his own. I'm, a, I'm fine with it. I, I, <laughs> I often expose my emotions. I'm okay with it. I think it's, it's valuable, but I'd like to hear yours too. Can you, can you pass the tissues? <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. So I, I grew up with a lot of beliefs that created a lot of friction for me and held me back a lot. But the one I'll pick, given the context, is I grew up thinking I wasn't athletic. I was kind of an overweight kid. 
I was really not good at ball sports. I went to a very small school where there were no, there was no- we dominated. Yeah, (laughs) I know. (laughs) We didn't even have a running track. That was a belief that I held for a long time. Flash forward, you know, I started running in my late teens on my own and realized what a powerful impact it was having on my life. It was a powerful demonstration of the falsity of the belief I was holding. And I fell in love with it. And that led me to be competing at a reasonably high level, amateur level in triathlon, cross-country skiing, running on and off the track. But my best thing was on trails and now gravel bike racing. And it's been 42 years and I've never stopped. So I must be athletic. Yeah, yeah. There you go. So let me, quick question. How many times have you run the Boilermaker? I think I probably run the Boilermaker three times. Okay, three. You've got me. I only ran it once. And I only ran it the one time because if you're from Utica, New York, you need to run the Boilermaker. It's a famous 15K. And I did it on no training and that was a terrible idea. It had nothing to do with belief. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Griffin, your turn. Let's see here. I think one of the ones that always comes to top of mind for truly how powerful belief can be, I was a really smart cookie growing up. I was advanced for most things, elementary school, middle school. I tested into a really, like at the time, I think it was America's number two public high school. And I tested in and I immediately struggled. Like, you know, I was 14. I started going through puberty. There were hormones. I was tired. Like It was just also a very different environment where I was finally being challenged consistently and and having a huge workload. And my parents wanted to see me succeed in what their concept of success was. So they pulled me out of that high school to say, well, we want her to be a 4.0 at like a regular public high Mm -hmm. school rather than struggle maybe at a really top school without kind of consulting me. So I got pulled out of this school and then I just felt very unchallenged and just noticed over time how I started struggling in places that I wouldn't have normally really succeeded. So I would get so anxious because I felt like a failure. Failure was my F word growing up. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it still is to this day in, in anything. And so I would start turning tests in. I would panic. I feel like I'd run out of time. I couldn't make sense of what was in the paper. And I even turned in a test completely blank with my own name spelled wrong. And I walked out of the class and nice. everyone was still taking the test. So by the time, you know, push forward, never really was able to get to the root cause of those issues, never really was able to kind of push through, somehow made it through college, made it through medical school, but I had two sets of licensing exams that you take during and and after school. And the first set's your basic science. I ended up taking that three times. I failed the first two times by, I mean, I was so close to having passed, but I would made little coping mechanisms for myself that were kind of faulty. I would always start the test at the back and move my way forward to give myself the perception that, hey, you already finished, you already finished. Mm. And I had a heck of a time until someone in my life was like, I know you can do this. You're you're brilliant. You're, you're an amazing doctor at the time, um, student clinician with all your patients. You're doing great. I'm going to pay for you to go to hypnosis. And this person helped me like strip. Cert- I did it three days before. I did it once. I did it three days before my exam. I walked in. I was done before most people in both halves of the exam and I passed and I never had a problem since. But it was this huge wake-up call to me because I just looked at how, you know, again, smart cookie, but just this, if I feel like I'm not going to do well or this perception of failure, I will shut down completely Mm -hmm. or I have in the past. So I think that power of belief, right? Because the only intervention that happened was hypnosis, which many people think is bizarre or someone holding up a stopwatch in front of your face and Mm -hmm. swinging it. So I love that. Yeah. I love that. So this transitions us really, really well into our take-homes. Perfect. Scott, we always start with the guest. What are your take-homes? So my take-homes are as much for the sports scientists who might be listening to this as well as the coaches and athletes. When I hear people say it's just placebo, (laughs) science doesn't care what you believe, my answer is it should because everything is physiology, including your beliefs. And just like you can impact your physiology through physical training, you can impact your neurophysiology in ways that can better support your performance. 
And a good mental performance coach can really play a big role and help to impact performance in ways that are far beyond marginal. Love it. Griffin? I think because I had an actual emotional response to you said this <laughs> earlier, some of these belief patterns that we have, I really am going to look at this like a highway almost. And that if you are not pushing yourself forward, like you would at a workout in the gym, on the track, your brain is going to do the same thing. It's going to pull over at the side of the highway and it's going to stay there. And where does, what does that serve you? So this, and not only confirmation bias as the, a sign of static beliefs or static mentality, but a lot of these other fallacies that we didn't even get into today. And I think that for me was one of the best visuals and, and also that our brain is soft wired. I think that's so great. I, I'm just kind of imagining a jellyfish hanging out in, in, my, uh, in skull. Hat, my hat rack up here <laughs> right now, but just knowing there's always something we can do to move forward. So I think mine is to kind of play off yours, Scott, you, know, you want to speak to the sports scientists out there. I want to speak to the coaches out there. And what I want to say is kind of Griffin, you alluded to it earlier. We as coaches can fire up their belief system of an athlete in either direction. We can create a belief toward progress and a belief towards plasticity of the brain and improvement and those things. Or we can very easily create a belief system that is stagnating and that is holding that athlete back. And I think that's true as coaches. It's true as peers. It's true as parents. It's true as friends. And it's true as just common people in the world. Listen to what that person's saying and maybe tune in and try to help them move forward and help yourself move forward. So if you listened to this podcast and liked what you heard, we'd love to hear your stories of the significance and the power of belief, what tips and tricks that have helped you. And maybe we can get some feedback and get Scott back on the podcast back to our 3am, you know, sophomore and college conversations. And we can talk about actual interventions that might be used. So I'm saying this now. So now you have to come back. It's been, it's, it's been <laughs> recorded and we can get into that, but thank you so much for joining us today, Scott and Grant for driving out. And yeah. we'll see My you pleasure. Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Tweet at us at, at Fast Talk Labs or join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com. Learn from our experts at fasttalklabs.com today. For Dr. Scott Fry and Grant Holicky, I'm Griffin McMath. Thanks for listening.